0: Welcome to this edition of Labor Vision. I'm Bob Delaney, Executive Director of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. Labor Vision, a production of the Institute, focuses on topics of importance to working Rhode Islanders. We hope you enjoy this edition.
1: Welcome to Labor Vision, a production of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. I'm your host, Erica Hammond, and join with me today to talk about a statewide survey around hunger in Rhode Island are Rachel Flum of the Economic Progress Institute, their Executive Director, and Andrew Schiff, the CEO of the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, we'll start with you Andrew. Okay. So I understand that the Community Food Bank just came out with a recent statewide survey around um, details around the demographics of households impacted by hunger in Rhode Island.
2: Exactly. Can
1: you touch on some of those findings?
2: Yeah the survey was actually conducted by the Hassanfeld Child Health Innovation Institute at Brown for us Mm -hmm. and what they did is they created the survey and then trained up about eighty volunteers to go out to food pantries and meal programs and talk to the people who are receiving food assistance there and uh... we actually got to talk to four hundred nineteen people We're very grateful to those people who were willing to sit down with us and tell us all all the intimate details of their lives and their finances and all the struggles that they have and and that was the reason that we were doing it we really Mm -hmm. wanted to learn Who are we serving through the food pantries that we distribute food to? And also, beyond food assistance, what are their needs? And uh, what we found is that we are serving the people who are most in need in Rhode Island. Uh, Two-thirds of the families that are served at food pantries include either child or senior adult. And uh, they are all living below the federal poverty level. And the upsetting thing to find was that this is true even though many are working. Mm -hmm. 69% of the families with kids had an adult working in the household and yet their income is so low that they can't afford basic necessities. And and that's what they described to us, making very difficult choices all the time Mm -hmm. between paying the utility bill or paying for food, paying the rent or paying for food. They're making these decisions all the time Really, it is the what you're, when you see the results, what you're struck by is the scarcity uh, and how they're dealing with that every single day, the stress of that, and you know what it inevitably leads to is that people are borrowing money. Half of the households had to borrow money from friends or family member, going into debt, and then uh, you know just uh, on a regular basis having to turn to food pantries and meal programs to feed their families.
1: It, it's an ongoing issue, right? It's so, there's so much to it, there's so many layers to that, too. We'll touch on it in a little bit, but you mentioned the, it's the working poor. Um, we'll go into detail a little bit more about that with you, Rachel. Um, what were some of the key findings from these surveys?
2: So one of the things that we were upset and very concerned about is that uh, 45% of the folks described being in fair or poor health said that they have a household member with diabetes. That's four times the the prevalence of diabetes in the United States. Mm -hmm. And 60% had a household member with hypertension. So the households that were helping have compromised health, and they have to be getting health care. That's very important, but they also have to be getting good nutrition, and that's a Big concern for us. We will m- want to make sure that the food that we're providing to people is the healthiest food possible.
1: Right. Now, Rachel, can you tell us how the Economic Progress Institute um, interprets these findings? Or What's your opinion on them? Sure.
3: So we're really thankful that um, Andrew and the Food Bank did a survey like this mm-hmm. because we're the data people, so we know what the data shows us, but it's really important to get that that real um, face on who it is that um, is suffering in our state. Um, And, you know, I think one of our concerns right now is that this feels like the best of times in a lot of ways, our unemployment is low, the economy seems to be doing well, but the real story is that there are far too many families that are still really struggling to make ends meet, and that they're often working families. Um, And so when we look at growing the economy and moving forward, we need to remember that there are low-wage workers in all sectors that need to have higher wages in order to meet their basic needs. Just to put some numbers with the data when you think about poverty and what that number means That for a family of three that's about twenty thousand dollars a year Um, And our minimum wage which is only ten dollars and fifty cents an hour does not get people out of poverty Um, and so we're talking about families with children who are living um, on so little a month. I mean, that's $1,700 a month, right? So I think a lot of people can think about how much they spend on different things of $1,700 a month. Um, And rent, you know, could Mm -hmm. take up an enormous chunk of that if you have children and childcare as well. Um, So we're concerned about what happens going forward if there's a recession um, and how we continue to to meet the needs of people when it's not the best of times.
1: Mm -hmm. And that brings up the point of this is the working poor, right, that we're, that's the issue that's being brought up, right?
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, these are, um, like I said, the jobs that are just paying low wages. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things to think about uh, in terms of solutions. Um, we can raise the minimum wage. Our neighboring states of Massachusetts and Connecticut are on the path to $15 mm-hmm. an hour. Um, our studies show that even 15 is woefully inadequate. Um, for a single person with no family, they need $13 an hour just to meet basic needs. So a realistic living wage is more in the mm-hmm. 20s, um, mm-hmm. but, um, Getting to 15 is an important step, Mm -hmm. Um, and we feel like um, Rhode Island can do that now, that they have uh, both states on either side of them at that level, Mm -hmm. so the business community should be able to plan for that and know that um, people aren't going to to go across the border um, to make less. Uh, the other thing to think about is because so many people are working, mm-hmm. um, there are ways to help those families. Uh, the Earned Income Tax Credit is an important uh, way mm-hmm. to help. Um, you have to be working and filing your taxes in order to get the Earned Income Tax Credit. Mm-hmm. But that it, it means, the Earned Income Tax Credit means that you get, if you owe taxes, you get a refund. And if you don't owe taxes, you get a credit. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a really important way for people to help meet their needs e- either, even if it's not on a daily basis, but to pay for their car that breaks down or to pay for if they have additional health care costs or mm-hmm. the other things that come up. Right.
1: And I know that, Andrew, you mentioned in addition to some of those solutions, you did mention, I think you might have mentioned that there's, in doing the, this research and t- getting these surveys, a large number of the percentage of individuals who are using the benefits of say the food pantries are also are using the benefits of the SNAP program yep. the food stamps what kind of impact would it have when if if that gets cut or when those cuts if those cuts happen right food stamps?
2: yeah so we found that 75% of the households are enrolled in SNAP that's a really good mm-hmm. thing that's a very important yeah. benefit for those families to be able to purchase food They also told us that at least half the households run out of those benefits within two weeks of the month. So what they're doing is they are relying on SNAP benefits, but they're modest. They don't really help you purchase a full month's of food for your family. You're running out and then you're turning to a food pantry. So the solution seems obvious to us, which is SNAP benefits need to increase if they kept up with the real cost of food it would help thousands of families in Rhode Island 150,000 people enrolled in SNAP but the Trump administration instead is proposing cuts to both the SNAP eligibility being Mm -hmm. on SNAP and the level of SNAP benefits and either one or both of those are going to be devastating and for these families we see they're living on the edge Cuts like that are just gonna send more people to food pantries. It's the worst thing that could happen.
1: Right. And what, what can we do to combat that? And you, do you have any advice for either people watching or people who are gonna watch this on YouTube who might wanna, if this is a call to action to them, what can they do now?
2: Well, it, One important thing to know is that uh, all of this was solved by Congress in the Farm Bill. And the Farm Bill was passed last year, and it was passed with bipartisan, you almost never hear that word, but bipartisan support in Congress. And so what Congress needs to do is stand up for the Farm Bill that they passed and keep SNAP intact, just the way it is, and don't let these cuts happen. And asking our congressional delegation to support that is an easy thing to do.
1: Right. All
3: right. And we would say that that's a much better solution than relying on the state to have mm-hmm. to try to make up these funds. You know, SNAP is completely um, federally funded, so it doesn't cost the state any resources, mm-hmm. um, and we all know that um, the state struggles to, to mm-hmm. invest in programs that it wants to invest in, um, and so we certainly would not want this to land back on, on the state to mm-hmm. have to continue to fund more of. Okay.
1: And some of those solutions that you mentioned a few questions ago, Mm -hmm. um, that dovetails nicely into things that people can be doing. So when the legislative session rolls around, calling your legislators, making sure that they're supporting these bills, like raising the minimum wage. Right, right? absolutely. So this year, the minimum wage did not
3: increase. um, So we expect that there will be campaigns this year to increase up to 15, we hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will definitely be a campaign around that. Um, and we think that that's a reasonable step now. Um, if you do a progression up, then everyone can plan for that mm-hmm. increase. Um, and it, again, is what our neighboring states are doing. Also, there will be a campaign to increase their earned income tax credit, the state portion of that, um, which again is money that goes directly back into families' pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they're working families. Um, and so, and those are the people that Andrew is seeing. So those are both right. really concrete solutions that people can help us work on okay. um, that we see huge return on investments on in terms of the state um, supporting them and then um, the benefits that we see in terms of less visits to the hospital, um, children who are able to study, all sorts of um, benefits. Right.
1: right. And it eliminates, doesn't eliminate completely, but it's, it's at least a step towards helping those individuals who have to make that difficult decision of what you were mentioning before, do I put food on the table, or do I keep the heat on, or do I fix my car to get to work, or do I put food on the table for my kids, right? Yes, I mean the other piece
3: of legislation that has been talked about for a couple years is the fair pay legislation, Mm -hmm. um, which is making sure that people are not discriminated against, either women or um, Rhode Islanders of color, Mm -hmm. um, so that they have a level playing field, um, and That is another reason that um, people struggle to make ends meet, either they um, don't get the raises they deserve or they're being paid less than their um, colleagues sitting Mm -hmm. near them. Um, And so there are real policy solutions that can address those um, that can make sure that everyone can get the uh, income they need to to provide for their families
1: so there's a lot to be done and a lot that people can do yes absolutely All right. uh, before we wrap up I just wanted um, you Andrew to touch on any events that you may have coming up at the Rhode Island Food Bank that people can be involved in
2: yeah one of the best ways to learn about what we do and a fun way to learn about what we do is to come to our open house Mm -hmm. it's on Saturday December 7th Okay. and uh, you can come with the whole family you get a tour of the food bank but also there are lots of activities so that everybody, from a little kid mm-hmm. to adults, can better understand how we're serving the state.
1: Okay, awesome. Thank okay. you. Well, thank you. Thank well, you. Um, thank you both so much for joining us. Um, I, I believe we'll probably see you back here in a few months, Rachel, right, when it comes time for tax season? Sure, we're Same. absolutely <laughs> happy to come talk about taxes Some
3: and stuff how too. the state okay. can raise revenues to mm-hmm. provide the goods and services that we all know and enjoy. Okay. Um, and we could talk about Child care or paid leave
1: or all sorts of other issues. There's plenty to (laughs) talk (laughs) about. And hopefully, you'll be able to join us back here too, Andrew. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. Um, All right. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, You're watching Labor Vision. In case you've missed any part of this segment or you're interested in the previous segment from uh, weeks prior, check out our YouTube channel. It's Labor Vision TV1. And thanks again for tuning in. Uh, We hope to see you back here next week. Have a great
0: night. Welcome to this edition of Labor Vision. I'm Bob Delaney. The Workers' Compensation Court in Rhode Island has long been considered to be a model for the rest of the country. And that's in no small part to the design of the workers' compensation system here in Rhode Island. But even more importantly are the judges that sit on the bench that spend numerous hours making sure that it runs efficiently and in the best interest of injured workers. Very lucky today to have um, two of the judges, the chief judge and uh, and another judge, with us today to talk about the International Workers' Compensation Fund um, conference that's co-sponsored with the Rhode Island Workers' Compensation Court. I'm pleased to have Chief Justice Robert Ferrari and Judge Stephen Minucucci with us today. Welcome, good, gentlemen.
4: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you.
0: The conference has been going on for a variety of years. It used to be in Newport. I think it's in Providence on the 14th and 15th this year at the Graduate Hotel. Who should attend the conference? And first of all, why does the conference take place?
4: There's been a cry out to have the conference. We- stopped having it maybe about three or four years ago for a couple of years and a number of people, um, attorneys, uh, people from the laborers organization, people from the AFL-CIO kind of contacted me and said, we really enjoy having the conference, Uh, we learn a lot from it and we benefit from it, so uh, we got together, we established the committee and we decided that we were going to have it again. Uh, we loved having it in Newport it was a great place but it took at least an hour to get there Uh, and if there was traffic and now with construction on the bridge it may be even longer so we decided to start having it in Providence which has been a huge success so this will be our second year at the formerly the Biltmore now the graduate Um, who should go there certainly any attorneys that practice comp or that are interested in practicing comp should be there any uh, insurance carriers or TPAs that are doing comp should attend the conference. Um, Any laborers, individuals, AFL-CIO individuals, union workers who have anything to do with comp should attend the conference, because there are a number of topics that are beneficial to everyone, Um, and it's just a good way of learning the system and how it works, and we key in on some central topics uh, that certainly are hot topics uh, throughout the country and certainly in Rhode Island as well so I'd recommend anybody that has any interest in workers compensation to attend
0: I noticed I was looking at the agenda and it's pretty extensive issues that the building trades have been working with on Rhode Island and opioids are included in there there's a variety of topics Uh, I found one in particular that was interesting we talk about bullying in the in, in schools and on the internet and there's a session there on bullying in the workplace and Stephen I believe that you have one on the fund
5: Right, so one of the things that we have established here in Rhode Island is something called the Uninsured Protection Fund. This is a fund that has been set up to guard against situations where an injured worker who gets hurt on the job, unfortunately, is working for an employer who somehow falls through the cracks and doesn't have required workers' compensation insurance. the feeling for many years was those people could never really get just compensation. They would fall into a situation where they were trying to get uncompensated care through our hospitals. So eventually society was paying the cost for these injuries and they really weren't um, being taken care of and they weren't getting anything by virtue of the fact that they were out of work to support their families and they would have really no idea whether an employer may or may not have workers compensation insurance they're relying on the fact that by law every employer in the state who has at least one employee is required to have workers compensation insurance so the fund essentially has been set up so that these folks can get something rather than nothing and while they may not get a full workers compensation menu of benefits available to them. They're going to get something to tide them and their families over until they can get back on their feet and get back to work. But the central point of this is, I don't want anyone to think that this is an invitation for employers to drop workers' compensation coverage and to think that this fund is going to substitute. What's been set up as part of this fund is a very, very aggressive program to go after the employers who are operating without the workers' compensation insurance. So they will not only end up having to pay fines and penalties to the state for operating without workers' compensation insurance, but any penny that this uninsured protection fund has to pay out to an injured worker uh, who was hurt on their job at their workplace, they will have to pay back to the fund in addition to costs for collection, um, and I'm sure it will be very, very aggressively uh, pursued by the attorney general's office. So um, we think this is a win-win for everyone. And it really fills a gap that we had in our workers' compensation system that hasn't been there for a number of years. And we, we, we have it in a, in a posture where it's ready to go and um, claims can be filed if something like this unfortunately were to happen today.
0: I know that the work that the Institute has been doing with the courts over the years, uh, particularly the Workers' Compensation Court, um, we're taking a look at the number of people that are going to court now um, with work-related injuries. In this economy where there are such low unemployment, there must be reflection within the court system on the caseload that you're carrying in, the, in each, of the ju- each of the courts with the judges.
4: There's definitely a correlation between the unemployment rate and the amount of cases that are filed. As the unemployment rate gets higher, less cases are filed. People are working through injuries because they're afraid of losing their jobs. Uh, Now with the unemployment rate being so low and so many people working, then obviously there are more injuries and there are more filings. So we're up about 5%. Of our claims, but there certainly is a correlation. To follow up on on what uh, Judge Minicucci said, uh, he will be talking about the UPF at the luncheon on November 14. I will be addressing. We have a special mediation program that the court is uh, bringing out that will be that will start the first week of December to mediate cases that aren't presently before the court to give attorneys, insurance companies, and employers an opportunity on cases that haven't come before the court to put them before the court so that we can mediate them. But there are a number of other topics that I think people will benefit from, from attending. As you indicated, dealing with bullying in the workplace. Uh, we have a uh, Valerie Caddy is coming in, and she lectures throughout the country on this particular issue. Uh, we also have Bill, De- I'm sorry, Bill O'Gara of um, Panone Lopes, Devereaux, and O'Gara to come in. He's a tremendous speaker. Following up with that, we have John Caddy coming in speaking about Medicare and Medicare set-asides, which is always a hot issue. Uh, Every case that comes before the court where there's a a thought of settlement and someone is Medicare eligible, uh, we have to consider Medicare's interests. Um, We then have, in the afternoon, we have a nice little presentation about the evolution of manufacturing and the life of the mill worker in Rhode Island, which will be neat because we have someone coming in to give us a little history on how this all began and how manufacturing began in Rhode Island. Then we have a great topic uh, on the opioid crisis, and we have several people coming in. Uh, Jim McDonald, Dr. McDonald being one of the foremost experts in the opioid crisis, works for the Department of Health. And then we end it with Dr. Ian Madam coming in. He's an orthopedic surgeon down at South County who's gonna talk about robotics and how they play a role now with orthopedic surgery because a lot of robotics are being used in knee surgery as well as back surgery. He's using it in back surgery. So some real interesting topics. We have a reception afterwards, so if people come, they get an opportunity to mingle with the court and with other people that are there, which is always a good thing. Yeah. Um, and then the following day, we have several breakout sessions, uh, one being keeping personal information secure in the digital age. We have Brian Lamoureux, another attorney coming in to talk to us about that. He spoke a little bit to the judges at a judicial conference about this very particular issue, and it was it, he blew us away. He was so good and so informative. Uh, and then we have, Two other sessions, one on ethics for the attorneys, so any attorneys out there that need some credits in ethics, David Curtin comes. He makes a very difficult topic enjoyable, because mm-hmm. David is fun, but he's very informative. And lastly, we have uh, the diagnosis and treatment options for patients with complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, another issue that we deal with daily Uh, Dr. Keith Perry is coming in and Bill Massey is gonna come in and talk about non-interventional approaches to the treatment for complex readable pain syndrome on a vocational basis so it's really a very informational packed one-and-a-half days
0: it really and it it caters to such a broad audience that's what I'm most amazed of I know that with the building trades we have spent a lot of time over the last year I think we did four separate sections just on the opioid crisis alone Um, because when you take a look at the building trades and, and other other occupations as well but in particular with the building trades the number of people who are injured on the job because of opioids but then in the very beginning the number of people who are injured on the job get diagnosed see a doctor get prescribed opioids and that's the beginning of the spiral downward and it's uh, we've spent a lot of time so I'd be curious to find out you know how many people attend that because I think there's a whole different framework of how people think about that opioid crisis today and they know that it's something that it's critical that we all are aware of and the impact that it has.
5: I would just add that um, this, this conference is one that allows folks to come and to really mingle as the chief indicated with everybody who's involved in the workers compensation system in Rhode Island that is a real plus because we have a small state by comparison to others we have the ability to have a court that's located simply in Providence, then have a conference that's in Providence. Attorneys can come at their convenience, but people outside of just the legal system, or even attorneys who are interested in getting into the practice of workers' compensation, can come and they can meet everybody who really uh, has anything to do with the system at a conference like this, and there is really no better way to get your feet wet in workers' compensation than coming to a conference like this.
0: I'm just so impressed with it, in particular, uh, Chief, when you mentioned the mediation services how that really kind of blends into and and for people to be able to learn more about that both at the conference and with you later because it 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 really does make the model that is so good existing already even more efficient when you talk about mediation and the fund
4: it mediation has resolved so many complicated claims uh, before the court the success has been anywhere from 75 to 80 percent of the cases that are mediated are resolved. It's just incredible. And we're talking about resolving cases, not only cases that come before the court, but we also have cases where there have been complaints filed for discrimination uh, in superior court, or in other courts, and we're taking those attorneys in to mediate as well. So it's it's been a huge success, and I just wanted to follow up on the opioid uh, crisis. Uh, again, we have Dr. McDonald coming in, and we also have Tom Cordier, who's uh, heading the governor's task force on opioids. He'll be coming in and speaking. And the court's been involved in the opioid crisis. For some time, when Dr. McDonald started scheduling conferences in the morning at seven thirty, John McBurney and myself started going to them. Judge Burton has started going, some other people from the court. We talked to them about the arro the donley Center, the arrogant Center now, and we established the program through the arrogant Center that deals with well, it's called the Interdisciplinary Chronic Pain program that deals with workers who have chronic pain and oftentimes, go to opioids to get relief from their pain, and this is a program to wean them off the opioids and to learn how to deal with their pain without the use of opioids, and it's been a very successful program. So the court's well aware of the crisis, and we've got two very, very good people coming to talk about it.
5: And with regard to the services at the Arrogance Center that the Chief just mentioned, I would add that those are available to anybody in the workers' compensation system at no cost to them and so that is really a win-win for these folks as well as the mediation program that the chief mentioned that also is available to people in the workers compensation system at no cost to the uh, litigants that come to participate
0: well that's why I think the system is so good I think from beginning to end you know the the whether we're talking about the mediation in the beginning or through the court system I know from experience of the work that we do with the arrogance center you know the the resources that are available there that but I think most impressive and most important is for people to know that everybody is covered by workers compensation in this state um, having said that um, it would be interesting to ask you to come back and let's talk about the workers compensation system at large because I think most people don't understand what a user friendly system it is any, any final comments chief?
4: No, we'd, we'd love to come back uh, we're sure. always willing to tell our story, and and try to educate people about workers' comp and the workers' compensation system. And we're proud, the nine judges that are practicing are very proud that we are probably one of the most efficient courts in the nation. So we're very proud of that, and we wanna keep that
0: trend continuing good I hope we can follow
5: up Stephen the only thing I would say is November 14th and 15th come to the conference get a chance to speak with us have some coffee and get some great information on topics that are relevant today
0: well I know there's lots of information out there and if anybody has any questions they can call the Institute as well as the court system we'll give them the information we hope that you will follow through on registration get involved and see how effective the workers compensation court system is in Rhode Island gentlemen Chief Justice Judge. Stephen Minicucci, I want to thank you for not just being on the show, but your commitment to a better worker system in this state. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for joining us in this edition of Labor Vision. We hope you found it informative and enjoyable. Please take a look at registering for the conference. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Labor Vision. We appreciate your input and encourage your comments. Labor Vision can be seen on this channel three times each week, Tuesday at 7 p.m., Thursday at 8 p.m., and Saturday at 5 p.m.